the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Good morning, Northeast Ohio. I'm back. This is Khalid Namar. In for Bob France. Thanks, Bob, again for the opportunity to fill your shoes, my brother. So I will uh, do my best to fill the shoes. We're going to have a little fun today. We're going to talk about some interesting things. Thanks for joining me. Those of you who are watching me on Facebook Live, good morning. And... Those of you who know me, because I'm all over the place. I'm actually, I go to so many places, meet a lot of people uh, who says, oh, you know, I hear you. I heard you on Bob France. I heard you on Bob France. So this has served me well. So I'm, I'm very honored that, uh, you know, I get the opportunity to get the call because this is a great station. This is a great show. And they have the, the luxury of picking, uh, you know, so many great people. You know, Peter Kersenow sits in this seat, renowned Cleveland attorney. You got Rob Walgate. You got so many people that sit here. So for me to be sitting here, I'm, I'm completely honored. So we got a good show for you. We're going to be talking about, among other things, I'm going to be talking about in a moment, Pete Buttigieg, who uh, made a visit to the hood. I'm going to talk about Pete Buttigieg. But we have my uh, legal analyst on my show, the Todd Allen Show, which is on Sunday nights here on AM 1420, The Answer. We're going to be talking about the national popular vote movement with renowned Cleveland attorney Jeffrey Sendelar, Jr., so there's a movement of the states to award their electors to the popular vote winner across the country. So that's going to be something that you're going to hear more about in the next, uh, certainly next election cycle. And we have an interesting organization, which is called NIFLA. And NIFLA is National 
Institute for Family and Life Advocates. And what they do is they help women in crisis. So you hear a lot of people complain that conservatives don't care about babies after they're born. So we're going to find out exactly how untrue that is. Uh, that'll be in the about 935 hour. But first up will be Jeffrey Sindelar Jr. coming up, uh, and, you know, after the first break. So, uh, I want to talk about Pete Buttigieg. Um, Pete Buttigieg is, is, is in many ways a, a typical Democrat. And that is, they're good at many things. I mean, they're good at calling people racist. You know, they have like 40, 50 different ways of calling people racist. But they're also good at pandering to black people. I mean, who could forget the infamous uh, Hillary hot sauce episode uh, while she was with Charlemagne the God on, uh, you know, Breakfast Club show a while back? Who could forget Kamala Harris bopping to Cardi B in a bar where she probably didn't know who Cardi B was until one of her people told her they go instantly to the to the lowest common denominator when, when they want to pander to black people. So Pete Buttigieg, mayor of South Bend, Indiana, decided to go down and, you know, not have a real substantive policy discussion, um, maybe a town hall. First thing he did was, mistake in my opinion, he goes to New York to have chicken and waffles with Al Sharpton. You know, he's our overlord, so you have to get Al Sharpton's permission to get the black vote. Then what he does he decided to go down to the hood and pop some 40s with the brothers out of a brown paper bag, no less. That was one of the dumbest things I have ever seen. Who drinks out of a paper bag? I mean, it's, it's like the 70s. And this guy, instantly he should be disqualified, in my opinion. When you don't have ideas, you, you pander. So he, uh, there's a picture of him. You can look at it online. There's a video. So he decides to go down with the brothers, places he probably would never go, and throw back some, I don't know what they were drinking, uh, out of this brown paper bag. Who knows if he was drinking at all. But uh, it's, it's all over YouTube. And, and, and what I find just pathetic, this is what they think. There was a study that came out that talked about how these people change their dialect when they're talking to black voters. So they try to sound more, uh, I don't know, urban instead of talking to people as you would talk to anyone else, you sort of quote unquote, you try to come down to the level of people you think you're talking to. So I'll, I'll have a, a, a couple of drinks, you know, I'll bop some hip hop because you know, that's pretty much how you get black votes, have some chicken and waffles with Al Sharpton, throw back some forties and you're all good. I'm surprised he didn't have a hoodie on. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And these people don't know how to connect with black voters. So what they do is they, well, I think they like, uh, they like, you know, somebody who wants to hang out, have a couple of drinks, listen to some rap. I mean, you know, I'm sorry. I, I don't play that kind of game. I grew up in the inner city. Yeah. I grew up in the hip hop era, but don't think you're going to cater to me. And I, and I would never vote for the guy anyway, but no matter who you are, you, you're not going to pop a CD and you know, throw back some St. Ives and think that we're, we're going to be all good. I'm sorry. That just, this doesn't happen. So Pete Buttigieg, you, you've embarrassed yourself completely. Drinking out of a paper bag down, down the way is, is, is just not becoming of someone who claims to be above it all. Like this guy does. 
you know, he speaks, I don't know how many languages he's been in the military, which I heard he basically served on a base eating, you know, like some of the best foods and, and didn't really serve combat duty. But that's another story. But this kind of nonsense they continue to do, the pandering is disgusting. You know, Hillary has constantly pandered to black voters, you know, with some of the most superficial things. And I think that people should say, look, you know, talk to us like we are adults. You don't need to, to, you know, tell us you got hot sauce in your purse. You don't need to throw back 40s. You don't need to listen to our favorite rappers. You know, you know, I mean, come on. This is a bunch of this is just what they do. They don't connect with you. So they figure, well, I, I'm, I'm going to pretend to like what you like. Uh, no, that's that's not what I want for. Trump has a lot of faults. <laughs> he has a lot of warts, scars, whatever you want to call it. But one thing, the guy, he, he certainly isn't a phony because he, he if he was a phony, he wouldn't be as caustic and toxic as he is sometimes because he just sometimes I think he just really doesn't care a little too much. But I think this whole thing of trying to cater to people on a very superficial level is pathetic. And I think when it comes to black voters, it is more common than anyone else. I would say people's language, uh, people's fake cultural uh, affinity. It's nonsense. And Pete, Mayor Pete, mayor of South Bend, Indiana, that's as far as I'm concerned, it's two in a row. You take a picture with Al Sharpton at some restaurant and that's supposed to do what? Because Al Sharpton, as you know, waves his hand and tells us basically who to vote for. So once you got Al Sharpton in your pocket, and you've gone down his favorite soul food restaurant in Harlem. I guess that supposedly does the trick. Uh, well, it does not. Not in my opinion. Uh, so, Mayor Pete, I would love to get a chance to ask you this question. Uh, I'm going to try to, <laughs> I don't expect him to respond. I'm going to try to contact him and see if he wants to, uh, you know, come on our show. Probably won't, but uh, we, we will see. Maybe I'll ask him to come in studios. We can throw back some, some Colt 45 or something. Maybe he'll like that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm sorry. I just think it's, uh, it's sort of absurd how these people pander and it, it's, it's insane. So, uh, Mayor Pete, you, you've angered some people close to me, which you'll think you'll be hearing from today. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk more about that later, uh, Mayor Pete. If, but if you want to see the video, I would definitely go to YouTube and watch Mayor Pete, you know, hanging out with the brothers down the way, throwing back some some pops. Um, I think that's kind of dumb. But anyway, this is what happens during the campaign season. People are desperate and they do all sorts of ridiculous things. So, um we're going to come back on the on the other side, and we're going to have in a, in a moment Jeff Sindelar Jr. coming up because a lot of people are concerned about this national popular vote that's going to be going on. So Jeff Sindelar Jr. is coming up, talking about the national popular vote movement. I am Khalid Namar. I'm in for Bob France, and you listen to the Bob France Authority. Good morning. We are back live on the Bob France Authority. I'm Khalid Namar in for Bob France. So you've been hearing about this national popular vote movement. 
And what it seeks to do is get a bunch of states together and these states will throw their electoral votes to who wins the popular vote, no matter who that is. So there's all kinds of legal. There's there's some decent legal arguments on that side. I'll, I'll give it to you. However, mine tend to go with the Constitution. So what we'll do is we'll talk to Cleveland attorney, legal analyst on our show, the Todd Island Show, which is on Sunday nights. He's here on the Bob France Authority this morning. He he is a Harvard Law graduate and all-around fantastic guy. Jeff, good morning. Hello. Good morning, Jeff. Are you there? Hi, Khalid. I'm here. All righty. How you doing, Jeff? Good, good. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for joining me, as always, to break down some very important legal issues. Um, this National Popular Vote Movement, uh, tell us about it. Yeah, so it's the, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. It's this uh, you know, movement of people who don't like the Electoral College, and rather than amending the Constitution, they've uh, thought up a, a clever way to try and get around the Electoral College and just have the popular vote reign. Yeah, and so there's also now I've I've done you know some digging into this over the last few months, and they're basing their decision on a couple of Supreme Court cases, one from 1894, I think, other from 2015, where states have been granted plenary authority to choose their electors. Uh, but when it comes to some of the legal issues in Article Two issues and Voting Rights Act issues, they may have a problem. Yeah, exactly. So, so the, the the relevant constitutional provisions here, the way I see it, are actually uh, just a couple of paragraphs apart. Uh, first one's Article Two, Section One, Paragraph Two, uh, dealing with how the electors are appointed, and it says. Each state shall appoint, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, a number of electors uh, equal to the number of senators and representatives from that state. So, uh, you know, you know, by that clause, it seems like it's up to the state how they want to choose their electors. That's fine. Uh, the problem is, if you go three paragraphs up to the final paragraph of Article One, uh, Section Ten. Paragraph 3 of the Constitution, it says, No state shall, without the consent of Congress, enter into any agreement or compact with another state. And that's exactly what the states are trying to do here, is enter into a compact that they're all going to throw their electoral votes uh, to the same candidate based on the popular vote. And that is such a glaring clause that they have seemed to have overlooked, the compact clause. And also, it seems to me that there will be chaos if there's a state that votes for one president and the states decide to throw their electors to the other candidate. And what's absurd about that further is that if you are planning or your argument is you, this is a more democratic process, you're at the same time stepping over <laughs> the voters in your own state. If you throw your electors the opposite way uh, that your voters vote, it's, it's insane. Yeah, that, and that's the real problem with this, the way I see it. Uh, other, other than the complex, compact clause part of this, which you know they could get around just by removing the compact element of it, the states could choose uh, to send their electors based on the national popular vote. The problem with it is the only way this could actually have an effect on selecting the president is if you're sending your electors to vote for someone who your own state citizens did not vote for. Yeah. And even more particular, it's most likely to, to hurt the swing states who would vote for who'd be giving up this disproportionate power they might have. So you're actually asking uh, politicians to deprive their own citizens of expressing their will in the electoral college. Yeah, and, and, and there's all sorts of, of legal challenges to be mounted. I think the Voting Rights Act 
Uh, this runs afoul of that. It runs afoul, obviously, of the Constitution. But there's been hundreds of attempts to remove the Electoral College over the last, say, 50 years. But this one has gained some steam in, in pretty much all blue states. Ohio, I think, recently voted down uh, this proposal in Ohio, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I, I believe that's correct. Uh, the, the, the Ohio, this was a non-starter. Uh, we also saw recently in, in Nevada where the, the legislature and the governor are all Democrats. Uh, it passed, it passed their House of Representatives and their Senate and the, the state, de- or the state Democratic Senator or state Democratic Governor Steve Sizzlex said, uh, you know, once effective, this would diminish the role of smaller states like Nevada in national elections and I'm not going to do that to my citizens. Yeah, and and I think that uh, when you look at who's behind this NPV Inc., it started I think after the t- well the movements, the latest movement started after two thousand. I think this company was set up like in oh six or something by a couple of surprisingly California uh, entrepreneurs and you know Democrats, and they're well funded. It, you know they've got this thing under consideration like thirty eight states. But you're going to see major legal challenges to this if it gains steam. But I think uh, the compact has to uh, you have to gain control of 270 electoral votes, I believe, in order to even make this work. Is that is that the case? Yeah, so that's that's the trigger. The, the way this proposed legislation is written is that as soon as states comprising 270 electoral votes have signed on to this, then every state that's a signatory would then start casting their votes in that manner. Uh, the, the problem is that this still wouldn't mean that these states acting as a unified block would necessarily elect whoever had the national popular vote. You could see a scenario where a Republican won the popular vote but should lose in the Electoral College, and then you would have Democrat states who voted for a Democrat in their state sending their electors and forcing them to vote for Republicans. That's where you'd really see if the, if the rubber met the road and how, how uh, serious the people backing this were about the national popular vote. Uh, whereas what I think they really think is that currently this would benefit the Democrats, so they don't want to look at the larger structural issue and why we have the Electoral College built into our system so that you have diverse states' interests represented. They, they just think, hey, this is going to help the Democrats, so let's do this. Yeah, and, and and the fact that this is again a well-funded movement, as the the left is very well-funded um, when it comes to this movement. I'm actually going to be digging more and more into this, but the constitutional challenges are glaring, and it, the fact that we have so many, in my opinion, we have some pretty sane people in the judiciary. Um, I think this will be kicked down. I, I really don't think it will gain much traction beyond a few blue states. Well, and I think what you'd really see if this ever actually uh, came to a position where it tried to get enacted is you had people in those states suing and saying, this is unenforceable. You can't force my state to do this because it's an interstate compact. And that's that's the really easy way. I, I, think, I think this is a loser on a constitutional front. Absolutely. Um, I tell you what, um, it, <laughs> this will be the fact that that the democrats are trying on so many fronts to take down the president i think they have even introduced in some states um the tax return issue so you have to submit your tax returns to be on the ballot in certain states which itself is unconstitutional because i think the supreme court ruled that 
the states cannot add requirements onto federal elected offices, but they don't seem to care. The Constitution doesn't matter. It's just whatever we feel like doing. There's that bill of attainder that they passed in New York State about Trump's state tax returns. Very dangerous stuff that's going on. But uh, anyway, we'll be keeping an eye on this in the future. Uh, and thanks for breaking this down for us. Jeffrey Sindelar, Jr., Cleveland attorney, Harvard Law graduate, has been our guest. And I will see you on the next round, Jeff. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We'll be back on the other side. You're listening to the Bob France Authority. I'm Khalid Namar. back live on the Bob France Authority. I am Khalid Namar in for Bob France today. So, we have heard a lot of cliches thrown around by people, particularly in this very high temperature climate regarding the pro-life issue. So what you hear are people who say that, you know, pro-life people don't care about babies after they're born. They only care about them in the womb. And after they're born, okay, so what? Well, a couple of years ago, I interviewed someone from a uh, very important organization called NIFLA, the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates. And I learned that all the things they do across the country, it's, it's pretty incredible stuff. So I've been waiting for the right time to, to get them on and talk about what they do. And we have one of their uh, very high ranking officials on this morning. Uh, her name is Ann O'Connor. She is the Vice President of National Affairs for NIFLA. Good morning, Ann. Are you there? All right. Good morning. Ann, are you there? Okay. One second. Let me see if we can get her on. One second. Having a little. All right. Ann, are you there? Good morning. Yes. Good morning, Cleek. Can you hear me? Yes. I'm sorry about the difficulty there. You know how radio is. Live radio. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Good Thanks morning. for having us today. I'm well. I'm well. Thank you. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Um, NIFLA, something I became aware about a few years ago, I conducted an interview with Mr. Tom Gleisner at CPAC, and I was blown away by things he told me that your organization does. So tell our listener, listeners about NIFLA and how NIFLA helps women. Great. Yeah, NIFLA stands for the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates, and we've been around for more than 25 years. We're a national nonprofit, and we provide legal counsel, education, and training for life-affirming pregnancy centers and medical clinics across the country. We have about 1,500 centers that are members in covering every single state. And uh, many of these are medical clinics, about 1,300 are medical clinics. And as you know, these, these pregnancy centers are awesome nonprofit charitable organizations that exist to provide options for women who find themselves in an unplanned pregnancy. Yeah, and, and I was just really impressed with some of the services you provide for women in crisis. Tell us about that. So, of course, we do um, pregnancy testing. Um, we do ultrasounds to confirm that the woman is even pregnant. 
Um, we help her with option counseling. See, most of the women that come to our pregnancy centers are feeling like abortion is their only choice. And we as women running these pregnancy centers don't think that's a real choice if you think it's your only choice. We want to provide all the choices, all the support, so they can make an informed decision about their pregnancy. And, you know, women are smart. Once you lay out everything for them, you show them their unborn baby using ultrasound, which is like a window to the womb, women choose life because it's such a gift, and they realize that these pregnancy centers will support them through the pregnancy. They provide maternity clothes, baby clothes, baby formula, and diapers, and all those kind of things that a, a new mom needs, cribs, strollers, um, car seats. They also provide parenting classes where a woman and her partner can come and learn how the skill about being a parent. And we follow them through the pregnancy and even after the baby is born. Interesting. Um, it's, it's, yeah, there's about 80,000 people across the country that volunteer at these pregnancy centers day in and day out who do these kind of services and offer these services. Yeah. yeah and after learning this myself a few years ago, it, it just made me wonder, like, why don't people know more about this? Because you hear the cliches from people that think that it's pro-life is all about just what's what, what's in the womb. And after that, it's like people don't care, which is furthest thing from the truth. Uh, how are you funded? So the majority of funding is by generous private donors. NIFLA is completely funded by generous private donors. There are some states that provide state funding for pregnancy center centers in those states, Missouri, Pennsylvania. They use TANF money and things like that to help pregnant women. But 90% of the funding for all pregnancy centers come just from the generosity of people who want to support and help women in crisis pregnancy. Yeah. So how do you, how do you reach the people that you're you're helping? I mean, for instance, we know that when you have it, for instance, an abortion clinic, people are walking into your door. Do people call you and say, "Hey, I need help"? And you know, how does that process work? Yeah, the number one way that women find us is through a referral by a friend, which is a great acknowledgement of the services that these centers do if their friends are recommending them to come. Um, and then the second way is, of course, through internet advertising. Um, you know, they, we work hard with all the SEO and paid for advertising to try and get the pregnancy centers up high on the list. So women can come to a place where their decision is not going to affect the financial, uh, advantage for the, the provider. Like if they go to an abortion clinic, the abortion clinic has a motivation to want the women to choose abortion because they make money off of it. At pregnancy centers, all the services are absolutely free because we want women to be able to weigh all their options without any kind of pressure on them. Absolutely. Now, when it comes to education part, um, are you all educating uh, teens or all these uh, people are expected mothers? Are, are you talking to young people? Uh, what, what are some of your educational uh, programs? Yes, there are, are many kinds of educational programs across the country. Um, we have parenting programs at the pregnancy centers. Um, often they're called um, 
NYU Learn parenting programs. We have father programs, so fathers can understand their role and responsibility, uh, not, so the burden's not just on the women. We also have programs that go out to the schools that talk about um, sexual integrity and risk avoidance. Um, last year, more than 2 million people were, received educational services through the pregnancy centers, all for free. Right. Wow. And and I was talking um, yesterday with one of your representative, Marina, and she mentioned some of the landmark, uh, if you want to call them landmark, but very important legal victories NIFLA has achieved in courts. Talk about that. Yes. Well, actually, a year ago this month, we won a big Supreme Court case. Um, it was a First Amendment case, and in California, the legislature had passed a bill that would require our pregnancy centers there to post a sign on the wall in their waiting room, basically referring for abortion and provide a phone number where the woman could call to see if she's eligible. And um, NIFLA fought that all the way up through um, the Ninth Circuit, appealed to the Supreme Court, and the court ruled in our favor. Um, Justice Thomas wrote the decision. And and really, this was a First Amendment case that was a victory, not just for life-affirming pregnancy centers, but for all Americans. Because what the court said is, in our nation, you cannot force people, you cannot compel people to say statements that totally goes against their grain. And so it protects churches, it protects everybody, even people on the other side of this issue, because we value the First Amendment. So we're celebrating that month, that that great victory this month. Um, And there's all kinds of battles still going on, though, Khalid. Um, Other legislators have introduced similar kinds of bills against pregnancy centers. Um, They were fighting it in Connecticut, in New York, uh, in New Jersey, and uh, the battle continues. Yeah, absolutely, because there's there's always that legal battle that takes place, and it, it takes money, as we know, because we have other organizations, one that's promoted heavily on this show, Alliance Defending Freedom, which is out there fighting a battle for religious freedom across the country and, and so many important cases, because this is a, this is a battle and people don't realize that the battle of, of ideas for the most part. Um, it, when it comes to NIFLA uh, expansion, um, is there anything else on the agenda that NIFLA or other areas that NIFLA wants to get into? Well, NIFLA partners with ADF. Um, they represented us in our case before the Supreme Court. They do an awesome job. Um, we adore ADF and their litigators. Um, we will continue to defend pregnancy centers wherever attacks come up against them. We will continue to promote pregnancy centers because, like you said, um, they're kind of America's best-kept secret. They're providing all these services for free to 2 million people a year, and a lot of people don't know about them. Plus, the other side totally vilifies pregnancy centers, which is just mind-boggling. Um, and I guess it's because we affect their their bottom-line profit motive, um, but they, they absolutely try and lobby against us, do PR campaigns against us, and it makes no sense. Because they're, we're there providing free services to women so that they don't feel like abortion is their only choice. And the women that come to us are so thankful because but for their local pregnancy center, they would have had an abortion. So we'll continue to promote those, um, continue to strengthen the pregnancy centers. 
Like I said, there's about 1,600 pregnancy centers that provide medical services. Um, we hope to expand that. Um, we are also getting into um, STI testing to help young people understand um, the message of sexual integrity and um, to be able to make informed choices in those areas as well. So, so I'm looking at your map. I'm looking at your website, and I noticed, I don't, well, I don't know if this is accurate, but I don't see anything in Nevada. Um, well, there should be. It's very sparse. Yeah, because um, I'm looking at your map. You have you have these dots, you know, all over the yes. all over the place, and and I see Nevada looks empty, and I just wonder was there a reason for that? Yeah. Oh no, I've been to our centers in Las Vegas, so that's probably just a, a typo there. Oh, oh um, you know, okay, I, I do see it. It's like down in the corner, like. It almost yeah. looked like it's in California. Uh, so. Oh yeah, they need they need pregnancy centers in Las Vegas for sure. There's okay, really yeah. strong ones. Yeah, yeah, it looks it looks very, like it's very like down in the corner. So it almost looks like it's in California, but I can see it. My apologies for that. What, so in California, I would imagine that you're, you're getting a lot of opposition opposition in that state. Are people protesting your clinics? Um. Yes. We have had protests across the country in Texas and West Virginia. Uh, in California, it's died down pretty much. I think um, the California uh, Attorney General losing this big case a year ago kind of put a damper on things. Um, and the pregnancy centers are so strong there. Um, m- most of them are licensed medical clinics by the state. So when you get a license by the state, isn't that saying you're doing things well? So it's hard to attack them uh, in California, and those centers do awesome work. Yeah, I'm sure because you're you're right there in the belly of the beast in California, so you would have mm-hmm. to uh, <laughs> you have to have your gloves on over there. So I noticed that you are very concentrated in the state of Texas, and I would imagine that you would be. Uh, in terms of the media or media exposure, do you have any media properties out there that people can can go to? any YouTube channels, um, anything of that nature? Everything is connected through our website, which is nifla.org. Um, there are um, lots of resources there, and, and including some YouTubes. Um, and if anyone had any questions, they could go through nifla.org and contact us, and we'd certainly try to help them. Yeah. So you, do you all plan on being at, uh, at CPAC next year? Because I don't know if I saw you there this year. Yes, um, the president of NIFLA goes all the time to CPAC. Um, his name is Thomas Glessner. He founded NIFLA about 26 years ago. Um, and uh, it was his vision to have centers go medical across the country, and we've accomplished that. We train these centers to go medical using the best practices of medical facilities. Um, they're staffed by over... Um, 5,000 medical people, most of them volunteers, who care about doing service to women in unplanned pregnancy. So we hope to be at CPAC uh, and keep spreading the word Absolutely. about the good work of pregnancy centers. Yeah, I hope to see you there, too, because I go every year, at least the last several years. And I want to thank Ann O'Connor, uh, Vice President of National Affairs for NIFLA, National Institute for Family Life Advocates. Thank you for joining us on the Bob France Authority. Look forward to talking to you again. Thank you, Khalid. All right, bye. All right, we'll be back on the other side. You're listening to the Bob France Authority. Uh, Take your calls.
We are back on the Todd Allen Show. I'm Colleen Lamar and for Bob. I mean, sorry, I said that. <laughs> back on the Bob France Authority. I'm sorry. Bob France Authority here. I'm Colleen Lamar. Freudian slip, sorry. Um, so we had an interesting first hour. Got a chance to talk to Ann O'Connor about NIFLA. Very interesting organization, I think. They do a lot of good work. A lot of good work people don't know about. And I wanted to save that interview for a pretty big stage, you know, like the Bafran show, because I think more people need to really know about what NIFLA does and it dispels a lot of myths out there. So look forward to talking to them again. Hopefully I'll run into them at CPAC. CPAC's a good experience. You meet a lot of great people and some of the best, you know, people I've met and some of the greatest interviews we've had have been people we've met at CPAC or, or from CPAC. So, uh, which is the conservative political action, uh, conference in in dc every year so we're gonna let's take a call we're gonna go to bj in north olmstead bj good morning good morning i'm enjoying your your program a very interesting guest on and it's wonderful to know that there are folks like your last guest that's on doing what they're doing i'd like to uh get your opinion on and and your input on the Democratic Party or the former Democratic Party, because they're no longer what they used to be as, as a Democratic Party in their intention 40, 50, 60 years ago, maybe even longer. Number one, they tell a particular group of people that they're not capable of taking care of themselves or raising their family, and they should be on food stamps, subsidized housing, and welfare. And on the other hand, they tell a group of people coming in from telling other people in this country that they want to bring more people in illegally across the country so they'll take jobs because the people that are on welfare and on food stamps are not capable of taking those jobs. Talk about a double insult for two different groups of people. Uh, then they want to say that we want to see you continuing killing your babies, and not only that, we want you to be able to give birth to those babies so you're not happy with what you see to destroy those babies. What kind of mindset can possibly belong to a group like that. What kind of racism is that? It's not even racism. It's beyond racism. It's too peculiar to give a name to. And it goes on and on and on, telling people in LGBT that they are more normal than people that are having families with a man and a woman marrying, and there's something peculiar with that. That's becoming abnormal. Having steady income and supporting your family is not as normal, and it's an insult to those who aren't doing it that way. There is nothing in that party that has a value that is moral or sanctified or has any any meaning to society as it was meant to be and has been for years. And I'd appreciate you expanding on that, some of your thoughts, if you would, please. All right. Thank you, BJ. Appreciate the call. Um, well, let me just say this. I, I've said over and over and other people have said it. I think when you have a a party that depends on misery and strife or misfortune in order to survive, I don't think that's a good thing. Even even you have some criminal defense attorneys will admit, hey, you know, it is <laughs> I won't be doing so well if there's less crime. I mean, at least they're honest about it. They know that their survival depends on someone else's misfortune. So the better we do as, as a black community, the worse it is for the Democrat Party. And that's that's a fact because their entire 
existence is based on us not doing well or not certainly not feeling well. Um, so that's that's a not a good place to be. Um, I mean, there it's just a fact. And I think that the key is to spread all sorts of, of discord and division while they're projecting that it's someone else who is divisive, which is a word they never use about themselves. Like only others can be divisive. So when you have people like Cory Booker and, you know, Kamala Harris and some of these other candidates who are out there on a daily basis saying some of the most absurd things, that's never divisive because they just don't see themselves as that way. That only applies to other people. And then the media creates chaos and then they blame someone else for the chaos that they create. It, it's, it's stunning to see when you sit back and watch. But I agree with you that th- these people survive off of this kind of thing. And the key is for people to do better, the individual to do better in order for us to need less government. I mean, that's just a fact because the, the bigger the government gets, that usually is not good for the people. And I think people need to understand that. Um, I tell people all the time when, when we do talks that the, the police, you know, it's it's a bottom up approach. So if you want fewer police in your community, then police yourself because, you know, you give them less to do. Because the more you break the law, the bigger they are, the bigger they become in your life. And that's that's the, that's the problem. I think the cops would not rather be chasing people through backyards and, and down alleys. And I think the best way to deal with a lot of things is to help the individual improve. Because if the individual doesn't improve, then that makes the state bigger. And as we see, these people have no limits or bounds as to what they will do in order to gain power. And uh, we're in a fight, ladies and gentlemen. We're we're in a big fight, and the bottom line is for us to try to improve our lives and to get the government in their proper place. And that is doing the things that they were supposed to do, but not ruin, running our everyday lives. Uh, but we'll be talking more about this in the next hour, I'm sure. I am Khalid Namar. I am in for Bob France once again. And uh, if you want to give us a call next hour. We're at 9216-901-0945. You can check us out. And uh, we want to know what's on your mind. So next hour, we got another great interview coming up with conservatives concerned about the death penalty. We'll be back. I am back on the Bar France Authority. This is Khalid Namar. I love that song. Love that song. Thanks, Derek, my engineer. Playing all my favorites today. I'm sitting here for Bar France in the last hour. It goes so fast. When you're doing this, when you're listening, it doesn't seem to go as fast. But when you're sitting here, it goes pretty fast. Um, We got a pretty interesting hour coming up. I want to ask you all, what do you think about the death penalty? We have someone coming up. Um, who's going to talk about that. There's an organization, I met them once again uh, a few years ago at CPAC. They're called Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. Concerned about the death penalty. So there is a reason to kind of maybe question it, of course. Uh, but 
I have some thoughts and opinions on it, uh, on the death penalty, and want to know what you think about it. Certainly after our guest Hannah Cox comes on, and she'll be on at about the 10, 20 hour. So that'll be pretty interesting discussion coming from conservatives because everyone thinks conservatives just has this off with their heads mentality but there is some diversity of thought on this issue and um you know so we'll talk about it i certainly think it's not fair for someone who's you know shot 20 people or killed 20 people to keep their life to sit in prison and play basketball and and watch television and get fan mail for the next 40 years I, i personally don't think that's right but you know we'll talk about that so in the meantime, we got a little time to kill. If you want to get in, get it, get in at 216-901-0945 or one 281 1110 And, uh, want to know what you think, uh, about the death penalty or you can wait till after the interview. Uh, but I'm going to talk to someone right now and, uh, interesting young man. His name is John. John has in a, a book that he has <laughs> written on the Trump collusion era. John, are you there? Hey, Khalid. Yeah, I'm here. Thanks for uh, <laughs> thanks for encouraging me to call in. <laughs> now you you're an you're an author. You write some very hard hitting investigative books, particularly on the uh, you've written one on the Trump collusion case. Tell us about that. Yeah, I have no qualifications for it actually, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's it's on Amazon. It's called the the case for collusion. Um, and it's actually written in the spirit. I, I got to give credit where credit due. Uh, it's in the written in the in the tradition of, of Michael Knowles' uh, reasons to vote for Democrats, uh, which some of the listeners might recognize as being a pretty uh, prolific uh, blank book. Um, and so I, I sort of took up the mantle there with uh, the case for collusion, the exhaustive evidence against Donald Trump uh, in this whole Russia conspiracy. Um, so the book is mostly blank. Each chapter kind of has a, some absurd or ridiculous quote uh, from either a party involved, uh, like um, John Brennan, uh, where he sort of extols jihad, um, or uh, it has you know some other sort of ridiculous quote from from any other actor, but but all from within the era. Um, so obviously it is blank. And, and the one thing that I want to say about that actually is I, I think these blank books resonate with the conservative audience uh, for the reason that um, some of the, the the platform of the left and some of what they've been promoting has just gone so far off the rails that it, it doesn't even deserve a dignified response in some cases, right? So I think that's really the, the point that you're trying to make is, is you're turning a blank stare, which is really what I would give most leftists shouting in my face, um, you're just turning that into uh, book form. Now, what I know about you, you spent some years in California. And I did. I'm sure that there's plenty of stories behind that. So how did you sort of survive? Were you in the closet out there being a conservative? <laughs> it's funny, yeah. So I, I moved back to Cleveland because of my uh, because my daughter. I just wanted her to be close to the family and, and not uh, you know grow up so much in the city, especially a city that's sort of collapsing under the weight of, of homelessness uh, and an administration that can't really do anything about it under, under Garcetti uh, or isn't doing anything about it. So that's why, that's why we moved back. But yeah, as far as being, as far as being in the closet, um, no, there, 
you know, stuff stuff leaked out, obviously, uh, especially towards the end, as I just cared less what what people thought about my conservative viewpoints. Um, but yeah, I mean, when we would go to preschool parties, for example, you know, you could tell who was conservative because pretty much everybody would be bashing Trump. Uh, and then there'd be a, a few of us sort of sitting around just nodding our heads. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but yeah. Wow. I tell you what, I could imagine just being out in California where it's, it's a one party state. There's not one Republican that holds the state office there. That's crazy. It's, it's like, I mean, yeah. It's, but yeah, we, we need to like keep an eye on what's going on in Orange County. Um, and, and, um, the, Southern California between LA and San Diego because it, it's traditionally been red, uh, but there's a lot of absentee, um, a lot of absentee ballot rule changes uh, that are making fraud easier. I, I try not to fall on the conspiracy side of this issue, saying that there's rampant voter fraud, um, but there are definitely some um, questionable questionable results coming out of Orange County, uh, which is traditionally sort of a, a conservative safe haven in southern california so definitely needs to need some attention <laughs> okay that's and we're quick we got about a minute left tell me about your next book that you <laughs> are going to not write <laughs> yeah if we if we if we only have a if we only have a uh, a minute left let me just say thanks to uh to you colleague because it was just sort of happenstance that we ran into each other I'd made sort of a, a, a offhanded comment to, to someone in the office uh, here and, and ended up uh, who knew your name and ended up saying, hey, you know what, you got to run and say hi to Khalid. Uh, you know, we ran into each other. And, and so yeah, I appreciate the conversations that we've had along the way. Yeah. Um, my, my next book uh, is, is called The Leftist Bible, uh, the complete do-it-yourself, uh, build a Bible. Uh, and so the back of it is going to have um, some random verses that okay. are – that there's no reference to the book chapter or verse uh, because context doesn't matter uh, for leftists and they can feel free to sort of cut and paste those anywhere that sort of supports uh, a number of their Dex I gotta run I'm I'm definitely gonna have you back on you gotta gotta come back and tell us about when when that book comes out All right, John thanks for calling you can check his book out uh, thanks for having me on absolutely we'll be back outside with Hannah Cox who is the uh, director, state director of 10C of the Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. We'll be back on the other side. You listen to the Bob France Authority. Authority. I've heard Bob has done this too, so I don't feel so bad. <laughs> We're back on the Bob France Authority with Khalid Namar. Wow, time is flying. Um, so, how do you how do you feel about the death penalty? Because I certainly am just not a blanket. Okay, every single case needs death penalty, but I certainly am not against the death penalty. But uh, we have a young lady that's going to clarify a position of many conservatives around the country because most people don't think that there are conservatives who have reservations about the death penalty. So there's an organization 
called Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. And right now we have on the line Hannah Cox, the National Manager for Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. Good morning, Hannah. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, well, thank you. I've, I've been wanting to talk to you all for a while um, since I met uh, you all at CPAC a couple of years ago because I think this is a topic that most people don't know about or uh, an organization that most people don't know about uh, that's led by conservatives. So I noticed in your title, it's conservatives concerned about the death penalty, not against the death penalty. Is that intentional? Yeah, I think that we keep it pretty broad because there's a lot of nuance in how people feel about this issue. And I think there's also people who maybe moved down a spectrum. I know when I first started looking into information around the death penalty, I was originally a huge supporter of it. And I didn't change my opinion about it overnight. I became concerned with some of the ways it was operating. And over the course of time, as I continued working around the criminal justice system and learning more, I did move down that path and eventually just become absolutely against it. But I think there's uh, room for a lot of different people in that in that group. Yeah. So, you, so you're against the death penalty in all circumstances? I am now, and that's because I really have just become convinced that the government cannot carry it out in a way that is efficient or that is fair or in a way that we know they're not killing innocent people. And so I think there's a lot of people also within our organization who maybe are still in theory in favor of the death penalty, but absolutely do not think it can carry it out right in practice and have become against it because of that reason. So you're against it on practical terms and, and, mm -hmm. and moral terms or... Yeah, I think my original issues that I developed around the death penalty stem from the innocence issues. I think initially I thought those were a bit of an anomaly, and I thought when they were discovered that it was proof the system was working. Um, I found that I was really wrong about that. We've actually had one person exonerated for every 10 executions in this country so far, and that's not counting people who have been released over other potential innocence issues or had their cases thrown out or things of that nature. So that's a lot of innocent people caught up in the system. Uh, the second thing that really started to bother me, though, were the cost. And I think everybody knows the death penalty is expensive, but everybody thinks that's because it takes too long. Well, in reality, 70% of the death penalty's costs come from the trial level, meaning that even if the jury doesn't give you that sentence, we're still spending about a million dollars more for a death penalty case than we would for life in prison without parole. So not only is that wasteful, but that means that we're not spending that money on things that actually could deter crime, and we're not spending it to solve more cold cases. When you consider that you've got only a 51% clearance rate in this country for homicides, that's not tough on crime, and it's certainly not justice for all to spend that much money on a few death penalty cases while we don't get any justice for the majority of victims. So how do you answer the challenge that people who are behind bars for life are still dangerous? I think there was a case in California, and I don't know the name, where this person put out a hit on someone on the outside, and, and that hit took the life of another innocent person. So the state swiftly just went ahead and executed the guy who had been on death row for over a decade anyway. Mm -hmm. I'm not familiar with that case, but yeah. I will say there's definitely a stereotype that most people have in their head that people who are on death row are the worst of the worst. And mostly when people talk to me who are in support of the death penalty, they'll say, I'm only for it when we're absolutely certain that it's the right person and for the worst of the worst. But that's really a very subjective classification, first and foremost. I think what I think is the worst of the worst might differ from what you think is the worst of the worst. And secondly, even if we could decide on that, you know, let's say people who kill children or something of that nature, if you look at who's getting the death penalty, it doesn't actually bear out that it is the worst of the worst getting it. It actually really comes down to the location where the crime is committed, because we see that the majority of cases come from only 2% of counties. And to date, all executions since reinstatement have come from only 16% of counties. So it's really very arbitrary. 
arbitrary. It just depends on where you're at. And so you'll see people on death row that committed a crime that, in many opinions, would be far less heinous than others. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.